0: Everything that's happening in the church in Ephesus is really about this new people group that is being developed by a God that is unifying people that aren't alike, right? So if you've been with us for any period of time, we've, we've been in Ephesians for a while, but the theme that we've run into that is sort of this moving theme in Ephesians is that God has taken the Jew, right, his chosen people, and he has taken the Gentile, and he has basically leveled the playing field by explaining to everyone that you are all sinful. And the only remedy for sin is a relationship with Jesus. And we give our life to Christ, both the Jew and the Gentile, which is everyone that is not Jewish, is thrust into this one new amazing family, this new household of God. And the Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus and beyond were trying to figure out how to navigate life together. Because they've been reconciled as one family. People that weren't alike or from different walks of life or different places are now pressed into this one new beautiful family in which you and I are grafted into as followers of Christ. And so a big portion of Paul's letter is the leveling field of the gospel and then the call to unity. Chapter 4 was a big turning point. It was a big turning point where Paul went from theology to practice, from doctrine to duty, right? From all these things that bring us to this place to how do we begin now to live in the reality that we are a new people. And he does the first 16 verses of chapter 4 all about unity. You've got to be one, one body, one family, one heart. And we spend a lot of time exploring the need for the body of Christ to be unified because it leads to maturity and we become the instrument by which God is going to demonstrate the fullness of Christ to the entire watching world. right? And So the maturity of the body of Christ and the unity of the body of Christ is paramount for the gospel. But a few weeks ago, we got out of that little piece of unity and Paul's building upon it now saying, now as one body, there are certain things that you have to do. And he's been laying out these duties, these practices, these things that we're called to engage in. And we're going to see four of them this morning. And and we're going to carry on with them next week. There's going to be a few more that we step into next week. But from the outside, they are so simple. If your four-year-old was sitting in here with us this morning, they would get it. Don't lie. Be useful. right? They're going to hear these things and they're going to say, those are easy principles, and they are. But they are so hard to practice. And that's why Paul is calling the church to engage in the movement of ridding ourselves of the negative, right? the negative portion, which we'll see, and instilling this positive action. So here's my thought for you this morning as we get into these simple things. If you can figure out a way in your own life to tackle these things that Paul's going to mention this morning and next week, Not only would it change your life, but it would revolutionize the way that you interact with your family and the way you interact with the world. So if you have a pen, I encourage you to jot a few things down because these are the takeaways that will be game changers forever. All right, Simple, yet really difficult and profound to do. But if you can figure out a way in your own heart to navigate this little maze, um, you're going to see some life change that's uh, unrecognizable. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25-28, three verses this morning, and Paul is going to give us four things. We're going to pick up the next few next week, but we're going to go through the first four this morning. And on the outside, they're going to be really simple, and we're going to dive into them just a little bit deeper. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to pray for us real quick, and then we're just going to dive headlong into probably some... some truthfully simple yet profound biblical truths that we are called to do and act and live as followers of Christ. Let's pray together. What a privilege it is to partner with people, Lord, around the world um, and even in our own backyard that are driven by their desire to live with biblical generosity. What a privilege it is to be able to walk into somebody else's home and share food, to be generous, to give our resources away. What a privilege it is, Lord, to partner with organizations and people that want to see a kingdom impact around the globe. What a privilege it is this morning, Lord, to gather with other believers from other places. Some of us here for the very first time. Some of us have been coming here for years. But to sit next to people in the same room that are just here to hear from you. That what we do this morning and how we engage with your word and how we worship and how we listen and how we speak to one another is is worship. And, Lord, we recognize that this is not the privilege that everybody has, that around the world there are people that cannot gather like we do. They don't have that luxury or that freedom. We've spent time with them. We've ministered to them. We've been alongside them, our friends in China. They can't gather together because it's against the law. Other places around the world that are being persecuted for their gospel beliefs, Lord, people that are afraid to meet in public, people that can't gather for fear of ridicule from their family or being ostracized from the community. We recognize, Lord, that for us, our Christianity is something we take for granted, the beauty of meeting together. So we pray this morning, Lord, for the church globally. We pray for the church up and down our street, for Crown Heights Christian, for Crown Heights United Methodist, for Baptist Church up the road, for the Thrive Church that's meeting in there, for all the churches that meet throughout our city, our state, throughout this country and around the world. where we pray for gospel unity. We pray that your glory would be manifested and made known and that your kingdom would come. Take a moment in your own heart this morning before we open the word of God and just ask God to teach you these relatively simple truths that he would use them as a a device to bore a hole into your heart. And ask the Lord to teach you through his word this morning. And take a moment and pray for someone beside you, in front of you, or behind you. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. I say this all the time. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is just not about you. Be somebody that cares about the spiritual growth and development of others. Pray for the people around you, whether it's your spouse, uh, one of your kids, a sibling, a friend, or maybe somebody you don't even know. Just say, God, move in this person's life. Draw them closer to you. Care about the movement in their heart. Ask God to orient their heart towards Christ. Whatever you feel compelled or moved to pray, just Pray for them. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. You are everything, and we need you to teach us through your word. Lord, take this truth, this theopunestos, this breath of God, Lord, that is more real than the air that we breathe and press it into our hearts and our souls. Let us become slave and servant to it for it is your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're picking up in verse 25 of chapter four where Paul is gonna give four extremely clear instructions, right? And I'm gonna give the, the sort of the positive side and then we'll explore the side of the things he's telling us not to do, but I'm gonna lift up sort of the bigger picture. And this is what Ephesians 4, chapter, or Ephesians chapter four, verse 25 through 28 says. It says, therefore, each of you So you can see it pretty clearly, without even getting too deeply, how simple some of these truths that we're going to explore this morning are. So here's a dangerous exercise. I want you to raise your hand if you are a murderer. Buddy? This is wise. I got one in the back. Thank you. Appreciate you. If you don't mind sticking around for a second. Raise your hand if you're a thief. Raise your hand if you're a liar. There's about three honest ones here, Right? (laughs) The reality is, is that everything revolves around definitions, right? I mean, we're not all thieves, we're not all murderers, but if you listen to some of the words of Christ, he redefines things in ways that we're able to wiggle our definitions out of, right? He tells us that if we have this thought about our brother in hatred, we act as if we are killing him, right? Right? We think of fee for a stealing as something that I actually may physically take, but Jesus is going to, we're going to see this morning, he's going to define it a little bit more as the things in our life in which are not useful that we take that aren't ours. And if we're truly talking about lying, not one of us got through this morning without doing it, right? So the first thing that Paul launches into is this idea of truthfulness. He essentially says, be truthful. Right, So he says it in this way though, put off falsehood, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. We live in a world of lies. We live in a world of falsehood, right? It's not hard. You look on TV or you scroll through your social media feed and you'll see it. When I was growing up, it was really easy to see, right? you turn on the TV and you could watch advertisements. If you wear this deodorant, every woman will think you're sexy. Can't ride an elevator without them climbing on your back. If you drink this beer, you will be super cool. You'll be like Lance Armstrong. And every day after work, you'll go to a rooftop bar party and everyone will love it when you show up. If you drive a Lexus... Not only will it not be cold in the winter, but your family will never argue, right? Advertising was driven by this movement of falsehood. But it's getting increasingly hard to define what is false and what is not, right? So if you scroll through your social media feed, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Filters on pictures, right? Posts that are not really anchored in real truthfulness. Twitter bots, AI content, right? You can go down the road of deep fake video. You know, the statistics say that across all social media and dating app platforms, between 35 and 50% of all profiles are fake. They're not human. They're actually designed to have you buy something, click something, or trick you into giving something else away. If you think about that number, it's staggering. It means that person you're arguing with on Facebook or Twitter that you don't know because they didn't friend you from high school may not and probably isn't real. They're designed for other purposes, to get you down a road, to do a product placement, to have you click a link, to follow this, or to just flat out scam you into something else. Or for the pure nefarious business of whoever's behind whatever. How do you know? The truth is, you can't. Because we live in a world of lies. Everything around us is built around some version of falsehood. We even perpetuated ourselves, right? We want to put on a different picture for the world than what's actually happening in our own lives. We tell people we're fine when we're not. We put on a picture of our marriage on the outside that is different than what happens when we shut our doors at home. We filter and doctor every picture to make sure every possible angle looks the best for who we are. Now, is that inherently wrong? No. But it builds into this idea of false living. And it's not that big a deal until you begin to measure your life up against the falseness of the world. Right? You begin to look around and go, Man, I'm really not sure I'm worth that much. I have this much. And then we begin to perpetuate it ourselves, to make ourselves feel better or more inclusive or more whole or more whatever. This is not new. It's harder to detect now, but it's not new. Even Isaiah, back in chapter six, when he has this vision of the Lord, he sees the Lord lifted on high. He says, woe is me, God, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Even Isaiah knew that much of what was driving him and driving the world was falsehood, was lies. And so he says here, Paul says to the church, be truthful, put off falsehood, right? In other words, don't lie. We go about this in a lot of different ways in our lives, right? Most of us in here would never think we're really lying, We don't just flat out tell these giant whopper of tales, but we build this narrative into by not being fully truthful. We go out with the girls, or we go out with the guys, and we talk about our husbands in a way or our wives in a way that isn't a truthful picture of who they are, but we vent. And what we perpetuate and slowly destroy is the person. So why does Paul say don't lie? Because God commands us not to lie? Well, that's one reason, but listen to what else he says in verse 25. He says, be truthful, right, to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So he actually says that truthfulness has a purpose in the body of Christ because we are to be about the building up of others. And when we live and we perpetuate falsehood or lies, we actually are destroying, right, destroying other people. Now you don't know it, you don't feel it, you don't see it, but when you craft this incredibly well put together post which is covered in filters and stories and you, you bleed the truth out to make this narrative look amazing and you know for a fact that it's not fully true but it's going to get a bunch of likes. And you've got friends that are all part of your platform that look at that post and they think, my life will never be like that unintentionally our movement towards falsehood begins to break people we are about the edification and the building up of the body do the words that come out of your mouth do they actually build up the person the character the nature of who that is when you speak about your husband or your wife or your children or other people are you building into who they are or are you sharing a portion of the story because you're angry You're mad or you need to vent. In doing so, we unintentionally begin to break down the community, break down our marriages, break down our children. When you gossip inside the community of of God, we are destroying the fabric of being one body. When you share partial stories that aren't yours to share, we begin to deteriorate and break down the fabric of the body. We are perpetuating and living in falsehood. So we have to ask ourselves, and this is the kicker in all these things, is what I'm about to do, say, or be, is it truthful? And then secondly, on top of that, is it helpful? Right? Because sometimes things that are also true aren't helpful. So I know that someone's struggling. I know they're having, I could be truthful about it, but I have to ask myself, what I'm about to say to this person, or post, or do whatever, is it actually helpful? Or would it be most helpful for me to just know and keep it to me. Paul is concerned about the unity of the body of Christ, and so he's talking about being truthful in a world that demonstrates something wholly different because God is wholly different. If this is a world of lies and a world of falsehood, then the believer is called to live in the opposite manner in a world of truthfulness and a world of helpfulness. So the first thing that Paul says is this, be truthful. And we're called to ask ourselves, is this true and is it helpful? And if the answer to either of those is no, then don't do it. Because it only benefits you, if that. So the first thing Paul says, be truthful. He builds on that by saying this, right? We are all part of one body. Number two, the second thing he calls to do, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and give the devil a foothold. So, I'm taking this one and I'm kind of pulling out Paul's intention. I'm going to say this. First thing is to be truthful. Second thing is to be righteous. You know what righteousness means? It just simply means to live with an honorable moral code or divine code and put aside our sinful nature. That's essentially all that righteousness means, to live under a divine or moral code or law and push aside our sinful nature. Paul is saying, look, live in a way that has a moral anchor that is righteous and he talks about it in terms of anger in your anger do not sin see most of us in believe as believers think that anger is actually sinful but that's not what paul says paul does not say being angry is sinful paul says in your anger do not sin what that means is that there is righteous, and there is holy, and there is biblical anger. And as believers, we should be stirred to anger over certain things. When we discover human child trafficking, racism, genocide, things across the globe that are, that are destroying what God has created and made, right? It should stir us to a holy, righteous anger. We should not be indifferent We shouldn't just not care. When we find out that there is more active slavery around the world now than ever before in history, it should stir your heart to this place of fury, righteous fury. We should be angry. And if you're not, you have to ask yourself, why am I not? Why does it not bother me to know that there is a child sex traffic trade around the world? Because I don't see it. Does it come across my sidewalk? As believers, we are called to a holy anger. And Paul says, in your anger, right, which you will have if you live in this world as a follower of Christ. Because this world is evil and it is broken and it is sinful. He says, but in that anger, don't sin. Now this is powerful, right? Because how do we have this kind of holy, righteous anger and yet not sin? couple of things. This is not my real point today, but I'm going to just throw them out there so you have them. Easy way to understand if anger is sinful or not. A couple of easy ways. One, if it's about you. If you're mad because someone has done something to you or somehow this sinners around you, it's probably sinful anger, right? My husband shouldn't have taught, said this way. My wife shouldn't have done that. I'm mad because that person hit my car. Anything that revolves around me is probably sinful if it's leading you in anger. Right, just We can go through a thousand examples, but that's pretty general. If I'm mad because something happened to me or it's about me or my feelings or what I think I deserve or what I think I should get or they treated me wrong or I didn't get recognition, if it's about you, most likely it's sinful. Two, if it doesn't bring about God's glory. So when you're angry, if it's not bringing about God's glory, it's sinful. In other words, just because you're mad does not give you the right to speak to someone in a way that doesn't bring God glory. Just because you're angry does not give you the right to yell, scream, these words, these obscenities, these things. Doesn't give you a right to seek revenge, to take something out on someone. Just because you're mad. Doesn't give you the right because you were wronged to speak to your children or your parents or people that way. In your anger, if it doesn't bring God glory, it's sinful. And that's a big one, right? Because you get to stop in the middle of whatever anger tirade you're on and be like, is the way I'm acting, is it bringing God glory, or is the way I'm acting embarrassing to myself and him? Mine's almost always the latter. right? And then the third one is really Paul's second point here, and I'll tie them together. It's don't let your anger linger. He actually says it this way. He says, um, in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Anger that lingers, that we feed, that we allow to fester, that we allow to develop roots, always leads to resentment, and resentment always leads to death. Even anger that starts in a holy way, if we allow it to fester, if we allow it to push, if we allow it to take up these deep roots in our heart where we feel like we were wronged or someone didn't get what they had coming to them, and so we hold on to that and we tuck it away and we allow it to linger, it's going to lead to resentment. It's why Paul says, don't let the day end with you having a place of anger in your heart that is not resolved. Now again, we're not going to resolve the atrocities of the world, but we'll resolve them to the Lord and say, God, while this breaks my heart, I believe that you are God. But if we allow that hurt that our husband, our wife, our family, our daughter, whatever, our sister, whoever it is, have, or our workplace, or our boss, or the police, or whatever the situation, we allow it to tuck in and we carry it into the next day. It begins to destroy. And I don't think Paul is being metaphorical when he says, don't let the sun go down. He's basically saying, look, don't let this thing carry into the next This is important, right? And it's important for a couple of reasons because when we do that, we slowly begin to exchange this, this forgiveness and this freedom that God has given us for these lies that the enemy begins to tell us. And that's Paul's other point in all this is he says, don't give the devil a foothold. And he attaches it to the anger sentence. It's actually attached with and and a comma. So it says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, comma. And don't give the devil a foothold. Because lingered anger, selfish anger, right? Anger that doesn't bring God glory is an entry point for the enemy, the evil one, to get a foothold in your life and heart. You know what a foothold is, right? Right? A foothold is an anchor place. It's a place that gives something, someone, or someone something very sturdy. So I get a foothold, it's hard to push me over if I'm rock climbing, and I get a good foothold. I have the ability now to spring myself forward and continue to climb this mountain. I have an anchor point. And Satan, the enemy, is always after anchor points in our life. And lingering sinful anger is an anchor point for the devil. It's not your holy right. It is him wiggling his way into your heart saying, you deserve better. You shouldn't be talked to or treated that way. Next time that happens, here is your response. You slam them. Next time that happens, you explain to your husband or your wife how they have done this over all these years to you. You can do that. You deserve that. They deserve to hear it. And he begins to whisper and whisper and you begin to get resentful and you begin to get bitter and then you get lethargic and then you quit caring and then your soul dies because it doesn't care anymore this is the foothold and the devil can destroy your heart other people and the community of God in the same time it is a trifecta see the enemy right he only works that way he doesn't just come in and bowl everybody over. He comes in and he sticks a foot right in the place that is most tender in your life. And he grinds his heel in. And you know how hard it is to get that out once it's in? It's impossible. And that's why Paul says, don't give it to him in the first place. Because it's hard to root him out. Because it begins to, he begins to camouflage with Reality. He begins to camouflage. All of a sudden, we're like, well, maybe that is right. Maybe I do deserve more. Maybe I shouldn't have. And you know what? Maybe you do. But what's driving that? What's the selfish cry at the beginning of that, right? So Paul says, it's going to destroy the community. And he's talking to these two groups of people, right? The Jews and the Gentiles that are now forged together. He's saying, don't let the enemy have a foothold because you're mad. And the Jews were mad. They were mad the Gentiles were allowed in. They believed they were a little better. And yet, God had opened the floodgates to the Gentiles, and I'd be part of the kingdom of God. And they didn't even have to go to the right schools or learn the right words or speak Hebrew. They just got to come. And most of them are like, they're not the same as us. We're a little better. And they're a little mad, and they're really selfish. And so they begin to let that anger. That festering, that thing takes seed and soil in their heart. And the enemy says, Yeah, you're right. You've done this thing your whole life. They shouldn't just be allowed in, right? Tell them they need to do more. Don't let them into your table at dinner. They can come to the temple, that's fine, but don't bring them into your house. This is the way resentment begins to work, right? So Paul says, Be truthful, don't lie. Put off falsehood. He says, be righteous in your anger. In other words, adhere to a moral code. Push away from your sinful instinctives. When you begin to get angry, do it in a holy way. Don't give the devil a foothold. Third thing he says is this, and they're going to come in the last verse, both of them. There's two of them. So verse 28 says this. It says, don't give the devil a foothold, right? In verse 27. Verse 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work doing something useful with his own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. He who is stealing must steal no longer. What does Paul know about this community he's writing to? Does he think they're made up of like a whole bunch of little, little thieves? Hey, how you guys been stealing? Don't do it. I don't know what he knows, right? But maybe he's not just talking about that. Like For, for a lot of us, when I ask the question, are you a thief? Nobody raised their hand. Right? No one. Here's our picture of a thief. I'm dressed in all black. I got a ski mask on. I sneak in my neighbor's window and I carry out an 80-inch TV. Or I'm at Walmart. I'm like, Hey, I like those gloves. Put them in our pocket. That's a thief, right? We get it. But I can go to CC's and get a water and fill it with Dr. Pepper. Yeah, gray area. Really, really gray area, right? I can take credit for something at work that I didn't do. I mean. You know, I would have done it. You know, stealing at the end of the day, the definition or the idea of it, is just taking something for yourself that's not yours. It's an act of saying, this is for me. It's an ultimate act of selfishness. It's just taking credit or taking something for yourself that's not yours. That's all it's stealing really is. It's not yours. But it should be. And we define those circumstances, however, they charge too much for this thing, or that guy hasn't been doing any work. Why in the world should he or she get credit for something that I've been here for 13 years for? We take an accolade, we take this, we take that, we justify it in our mind, right? We steal. We just do. Every single one of us. And we justify it as long as it's not a little bigger than the guy down the street, right? Because he's stole or embezzled 13 million, and mine was a pair of Isotoners, fancy gloves, back in the day. We justify it. But Paul says this, listen, live with integrity. Integrity is a powerful word. Two, two great definitions for it. I love them both. The first is that I'm living in a way that is morally upright, and the second way is that I'm, I, it is something that is undivided and whole. So, like, if a bridge has integrity, it is undivided, it is whole, it is able to be built upon. If you put those two definitions together and you think about what it means to live with integrity, it's really powerful, right? I'm living in this morally upright way, and I'm undivided. See, really, when I steal, when I live in a way that is taking credit or taking something or getting for myself something that's not mine or that, is not, didn't, that I didn't do, I'm living in a spiritually divided place because truthfully I'm living in a way that is just about me, selfish. It's ultimately saying the universe revolves around me and I should get what I want. And I can define what that is because I've worked really hard and I should have it and they should have paid me anyway. Or life has been really hard and we're out of work and I need to do these things and so I'm just going to take this. It's ultimately the selfish act. Living with integrity is the ability to live morally and do it in a way where your heart is undivided. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, some of you in the community, you've justified yourself into a life that is divided. But the call of Christ followers is living wholly different than the world. So it doesn't matter what the world does. It doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. It doesn't matter how they justify it. Now the people at work always do it and they take all the supplies home or they take all the K-cups from the coffee thing and they take it back to their own house. I mean, I was going to use them here anyway. I might as well take 12 home. I just didn't drink my coffee today. We justify all these places. But the believer, right, Paul's essentially saying is supposed to be doing something wholly different. And he says it this way. They're supposed to be useful. Right? If you steal, don't steal anymore. Right? But do this instead. Because he always has this great exchange. Right? you've been stealing, don't do it anymore, but do something useful with your own hands. So instead of making the universe revolve around you and taking credit or something that doesn't belong to you, be useful. Do something with your own hands. Be a man or a woman or a young person of integrity, right? Who cares if no one sees? God knows and sees all, right? Right? Who cares if somebody else thinks it doesn't matter or it's only this thing or the, just live in a way that is morally whole. Integrity is the idea of being undivided. And he says, be useful. Do something with your own hands. The value of doing something right that you produce, you give, you manifest or labor for has a tremendous value in the kingdom. But here's the beautiful part of all of this. And this is where the gospel comes into play in a really powerful way. Why do you be useful? So we got to be truthful, be righteous, be useful. Why be useful? Why not steal? And he says it's all for this one singular reason. It's the end of verse 28. It's the last thing Paul says. Why? So that we can be generous. Listen to verse 28. If you're stealing, don't steal anymore. Just quit. Do something with your own hands. Now listen to this so that you may have something to share with those in need. Why quit stealing? Why work with your own hands so that you can build up for your family, store a bunch of things away, buy a bunch of cars, develop this great kind of platform for yourself? No. Quit stealing. Be useful so that you can give what God has blessed you with away. Be generous. It's an incredible reversal, right? He's basically saying, thief, become a giver, right? Instead of being a taker and a hoarder, be a giver. Instead of taking what you think is, belongs to you because the universe revolves around you, take what God has given you and give it away. You want to work and labor so that you can give what God has blessed you away. There is no greater feeling in the universe and saying, God, you have given me all these things that I get to be a steward of what you've given me by giving to those in need. It's the picture of the gospel community, right? We all live in this way in integrity so that we can share with those that are struggling or that are in need or that need help or that I care about. It's not just so that you can quit stealing. In the God's economy, it's never just about the don'ts. It's never about the just don'ts. It's not just about don't murder. It's about giving life. It's not just about not stealing. It's about giving away. It's the great reversal of the kingdom of God that God has not given us a list of things just not to do. He's actually given us a list of things not to do because the alternatives are so much more life-giving. God's not trying to make you morally perfect, right? What he's trying to get you to do is understand this beautiful gospel-oriented life that he has called you to in which you want to be morally righteous so that people know Jesus. Not so you can check a bunch of boxes to get into heaven. That's the beauty of the gospel. We're already in. That's the entire point of Ephesians 1 through 4. All we do is give our lives over to Jesus and we are guaranteed salvation. It's not contingent on whether or not you stole a Dr. Pepper from CC's. It's contingent on your heart given to Christ, but the response to that heart given to Christ is what's important. Because I've been saved, I get to. Because I've been saved, I get to be truthful. I don't have to live in that falsehood lie world anymore. I don't have to fake all my posts and fake all my relationship status and pretend we're in church and something that we're not. I don't have to perpetuate a life of falsehood and lies. I don't have to build myself up to make myself look or feel better in front of others. I don't have to be angry for the the sake of being angry. I can be righteous in it and be angry that the sins around the world are crushing people and I can pray and I can fight and I can do those things in a righteous way, but I don't have to be self-centered in it. I don't have to take my anger out to hurt other people. I get to be righteous because God has saved me. I get to be useful. I don't have to steal or take or things that aren't mine, not just the physical, but the the emotional things as well. I don't get to rob from my spouse because I'm feeling depressed, so I steal their joy. I don't have to do that. But I can work with my hands and my life to cultivate something that's useful and not so that I'll feel better about me or so that I can build something up or that I can be this, but so that I can give it away. And this is what Paul is telling the church. Be truthful, be righteous, be useful, be generous. If your five-year-old sat in here with us this morning, they'd get it. Don't lie, don't stay angry, and don't be angry for the wrong reasons, right? Don't steal, give your stuff away. But if you can figure out how to take those simple practices and embed them into your life, it will change who you are so I encourage you this week to make a list. Start. What do I need to do to be more truthful? What do I need to do to make sure that I'm not acting sinful in my anger? What do I need to do to not lie to myself and to the world? And what do I need to do to become more generous? Right? What are the small things I can do to give my life away, my stuff, my things? These are the revolutionary ideas that Paul is going to begin to press into the life of the gospel community. Next week, he's actually going to take it one step and a couple of steps a little further. We're going to talk about the words that come out of our mouth and how they matter for building up life. So if you like to destroy people with your words, you're going to want to miss next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here this morning. For the beauty of the gospel, for the truth and centrality of the message, for the fact that not everything is all that complicated. Sometimes the central point of everything is really simple don't lie, don't become angry, don't steal, be generous. Like these are simple, amazing, real truths. And they are life giving, and you call us to them. Says, so A community, Lord, stir our hearts to this place that we would not perpetuate falsehood that we would be righteous in our anger. We wouldn't let the S- Satan and his deceptive ways have foothold in our life when it comes to anger. God, that we would be people that promoted truthfulness, that we would be useful, that we wouldn't steal not just things, but ideas, credit, that we'd be givers, and that we'd be generous. As we close our time in worship, Lord, press these things into our soul and teach us how, a ch- as a church, Not only can we engage them individually, but we can engage them together. Let's stand together and close our time in worship.
1: shall return in power to reign heaven and earth will join to sing
0: challenge and all these things becomes, how do we walk out of this place, not just nodding, going, yes, that's probably right, pretty good, to actually begin to put them into place. So make that your call and challenge this week. How do I begin to live these truths out, right? We are all part of one family, right? Let's do life as a way of edifying the family of God so that we can glorify God together. Go in peace.